Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the crime scene. Couple of quick announcements before we get started. Number one, I hope if you are a fan of my paranormal shows, uh, Campfire and the Paranormal Podcast, that you will see me on my tour. It's coming up this June. We're going to Pittsburgh. We're going to Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. And you can get your tickets today at jimherald.com slash tour. jimherald.com slash tour. I hope to see you there. Secondly, I wanted to talk a little bit about the crime scene and its future. Now, first of all, the good news is we are not pulling the plug on crime scene. It is going to go to an every other week schedule. We've decided that uh, I was trying to do a little too much at the beginning of the year, trying to uh, relaunch basically three different shows, making them every week and it just was a little too much. So, uh, of course, no change, no change whatsoever to Campfire and the Paranormal Podcast. But as for this show, The Crime Scene, it is going to go to an every other week status. And we're going to be as consistent as we can possibly be on the release of those. I think it hurts the show a little bit when we're not uh, consistent. But here is another thought. You know, I brought this show back because I think that it is uh, – Something different than the true crime space. I think we do a pretty good job of it. And I think although the big hits are like the Dateline style shows that are really more focused on, you know, the narrative and spooky music and those kind of things, that there is space for an intelligent interview show on true crime. And that's what I think this show is. However... The numbers are not bearing that out, friends. Uh, it is uh, very stagnant, uh, very disappointing, honestly. I'm just kind of being very transparent with you. So basically what we've decided to do is continue crime scene for another three months until July, uh, mid-July. And we're going to see where we're at. We're going to see if the numbers go up, uh, if we can grow the listenership, and if we can, we will continue. And if we can't, we will probably just leave the archive up and say goodbye to Crime Scene as a continuing podcast. So really, I'm asking you as a fan of this show, and if you're listening this far, you're a fan of this show, please tell your friends. I know many of you are active on the true crime forums, online, Reddit, Facebook, whatever it might be. Please Tell people about Crime Scene if they want an intelligent interview show about these true crime cases. And uh, that's all I can ask. And really, I leave, I leave the fate of Crime Scene in your hands. And hopefully it will grow. Let me know what you think about the show, if you enjoy it, or if you think, hey, Jim, you know, this is... This is not my flavor of true crime. I'm not interested in this. That's okay, too. Just let me know. I mean, as many of you know, I'm essentially a one-man band with some great part-time help. Uh, our production assistant, Maddie, is key. Uh, my kids help out quite a lot. We have been using some editors who have been fantastic to help with some of the shows. My daughters help out when they have time between college and work. Uh, but really, I am the full-time employee of this show and of this company and I have to focus on things that people respond to. And, you know, it makes a lot more sense for me to spend more time on Campfire, which people love, than maybe a show just I love and not that many other people do. So let me know. And 
more importantly, let the world know. And people that are interested in true crime, I would appreciate it very much. And again, this is not complaining or nothing like that. I'm just being straight with you as a friend and someone who appreciates your listenership. So here we go. Here's the next edition of The Crime Scene. The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they need justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to The Crime Scene. I'm Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And a theme that keeps coming up recently on the show is that of serial killers. And it amazes me when you have someone who's actually, to some extent, as much as possible, I guess, gotten into the mind of serial killers, trying to understand why and what's going on, even though it seems like something that's impossible, frankly, to understand. And we've got a great expert in that regard today. I'm talking about Dr. Joni Johnston. She is a clinical forensic psychologist, private investigator, and true crime writer who became interested in the dark side of human nature after reading Helter Skelter, of course, that classic account of the Manson family. And that goes back to when she was 14 years old. She has spent her professional career in prisons, forensic hospitals, and courts, and has worked with both offenders and victims. She also has a passion for communicating forensic psychology to the public and writes a blog for Psychology Today. It's called The Human Equation, a YouTube channel called Unmasking a Murderer, and a podcast, Behind the Mask. She's a mom of four, a foster mom to dozens of animals, and loves to work out, read, and visit historical places. And we're also going to talk about her recent book, Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. Dr. Joni Johnston, thank you for joining us today on the program. I am delighted to be here. So I, I guess my first question, before we get to the serial killers, um, you know, even doing this show, I mean, I've done 200 episodes of this and there's been various times where I've started it and I've stopped it and I've restarted it. And part of the reason I've done this is that, you know, this is some of this is very difficult material to deal with. Why did you make that decision to head down this road and kind of confront um, the worst of human nature? That's such an interesting question. And, you know, when I think back on things, my mom was very much a true crime fan. I was also interested in true crime long before I became a forensic psychologist. And you had already mentioned that I had read Helter Skelter, which was absolutely fascinating in a morbid way. I just could not understand why someone would want to hurt people that he didn't even know. Mm -hmm. And then when I was a teenager, a senior, year, senior in high school, Ted Bundy, who I'm sure all of your listeners know who he is, escaped from a Colorado jail, made his way down to FSU, which was about 80 miles from my house, and murdered several women in the Kaimago sorority house. And again, I just, I, I was just horrified by this to think that, you know, pure, innocent people going about their daily lives and this predator essentially comes in and hurts them really just intrigued me and I wanted to kind of figure out why. And so I think that started me on my path from someone interested in true crime to someone who really wanted to try to prevent it. And so that really became, I guess, a mission for me in a way. And I was very lucky in my first job out of graduate school. I worked with victims and their families and was able to evaluate not only victims and, you know, kind of 
non-offending parents. There were a lot of incest um, victims that I saw, but also to evaluate offenders. And then I kind of was also lucky later in life to work with offenders. And that's one thing I encourage all of my students to do because it really helped me, I guess, understand in some respects you know, the kind of the entire cycle of violence in terms of the mindset of people who do these things, the impact on people who are victims, sometimes the overlap between the two in terms of the trauma that you see in children. You know, why is it that some children who are victimized grow up to become champions of other victims and others become perpetrators? And so I really do approach this topic with the goal in mind to try to help us understand so we can not only be safe, but find out and intervene earlier. Because by the time someone becomes a serial killer, yeah, there's really no treatment, right? Uh, we don't know what to do with them other than to put them away. Back to your background just a little bit before we delve into the question of serial killers. People have probably heard the term forensic psychologist, but there are probably many people uh, need a little clarification on what exactly that means. What is a forensic psychologist? A forensic psychologist is a psychologist who uses her skills and expertise to try to help the court system solve some legal question or problem. So it's really where psychology and law overlap. Now, practically, that can be anything from uh, people are going through a bitter divorce, they're in a custody battle, a psychologist evaluates, you have to figure out what is the best custody arrangement, all the way to somebody has murdered somebody else and they're claiming insanity and I'm asked to go in and evaluate, is this person legally insane and what did their mental illness have to do with the crime they committed? So it really answers a bunch of different legal questions, but that's kind of the overall umbrella. So on to the question of serial killers. When we talk about serial killers, the question of evil comes into question. I mean, certainly I think that anybody who looks at this believes that, I'm assuming in the vast majority of cases, that there is mental illness involved. Uh, because how could somebody do this if they weren't mentally ill, I wonder? But, but because it's different, it's a different type of killing. In the sense, if you know, if somebody gets in an argument and there's violence and somebody throws a punch and somebody falls down and hits their head on the table, that's a lot different. And I'm not saying it's good, but it's a lot different than seeking out prey and saying, I'm going to kill this person and that person and, you know, targeting people and so forth. It's a whole different level. Now, I've talked to people who say, it's just pure mental illness. I've talked to other people who have said, well, it, it's it's a mix. There There is evil in the world, and it's a mix of evil and mental illness. Um, of course, background, at least sometimes, has to come into play. And then uh, some people, you know, again, think it's just pure evil. Where do you come down on this? Is this, are we, are we kind of spookifying this when we say there's evil? Uh, is it just simply mental illness uh, when it comes to the motivations and the reasons why this happens? Or is it much more complicated than that? Well, it certainly is complicated, I think. You know, the whole issue of evil is interesting to me. I mean, I think as a forensic psychologist, I tend to think of evil almost with religious or moral overtones. Mm -hmm. And so I, it isn't necessarily a useful framework for me professionally. You know, personally, I think it's a different story. And you know, see some of the things that people have done. It's very difficult for me to completely steer clear of that, you know, of that idea. Um, 
But in terms of just looking, I think, at mental illness and serial killers, I think that we can pretty definitively say that most serial killers do not have a mental illness as defined by what most psychologists would say is mental illness. When we think about mental illness, we think about things like, you know, depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, anxiety disorders. And, you know, like, you know, over 50% of serial killers have never had any kind of psychiatric diagnosis. And then when you look at the ones who have been diagnosed, they're much more likely to be diagnosed either with a personality disorder, such as psychopathy, um, or antisocial personality disorder, or narcissistic personality disorder. And we tend to think of those as kind of long-standing conditions that somebody has more than a you know mental illness. So I think I'm so glad that you brought that up, Jim, because I think one of the biggest myths about serial killers, because of the things that they do, is that in order to do those things, you have to be mentally ill. And, you know, and how we understand mental illness as a society, that is just not true. In terms of the amount of serial killers, are we seeing an uptick? Uh, are we seeing a downturn, which would be a good thing in this case? Or is it about the same? What are, what are we seeing these days in terms of the statistics and the occurrences of serial killers? Well, that's a tricky one because I think the common wisdom, and there's some research to support that, the FBI has recently said that there's been 85% reduction in serial killers today in comparison to the heyday of serial killers in the 1970s and 1980s. You know, of course, we never know about the ones that have not been caught. Mm -hmm. So that always shows a little bit of a wild card in there. And I think there's a little bit of a confounding variable here because the solve rate of murders has gone down. You know, mm. in the 1970s, it's kind of odd to think that, the, you know, the murder rate, solve rate was about 90%. Today, it's about 60%. Wow. So it's kind of like, well, are there more serial killers who are getting away with it? And I think the way, you know, the one way to try to gauge that is to kind of go, okay, let's try to look at unsolved crimes where there's been some physical evidence connecting more than one crime. Um, and when you do that, you can find vastly different estimates. Um, there's a guy named Thomas Hargrave who, who's done an amazing job of looking at all these unsolved cases. And he estimates that about 2% of unsolved crimes today are committed by serial killers, which is much higher, I think, than than most researchers would say. So I think you, know, you can find estimates that there are you know, approximately 170 to 200 active serial killers today, all the way to 2,000. We just don't know. But I do think it, it is true that if you look now compared to like the 1970s, 1980s, there are fewer serial killers today than there were then. Mm-hmm. And, and and that solve rate statistic blew me away because you would think now with DNA, uh, closed circuit television and the preponderance of video um, and all these different things, DNA evidence, as I said, um, you would think that the solve rate would be higher, if anything, that it would be tougher to be a serial killer these days. But it sounds like that's not necessarily the case. Well, I completely agree with you. I do. And I, I don't know if there's been a, a good explanation or an acceptable explanation for that. I mean, we know that, you know, DNA and physical evidence is only left at about 50% of crime scenes. So that's, excuse me, that's one thing to consider. I guess another is to consider that perhaps as law enforcement becomes more sophisticated, criminals do as well. And so there's the whole issue are, you know, criminals becoming smarter 
in terms of understanding CSI and how to avoid leaving this material and those kinds of things. So I think it is it is puzzling because you're absolutely right. We kind of go with all these cameras and all the technology that's come about. Why is the solve rate so low um, relative to how it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago? And I think that's something that I don't know that I have a good explanation for or that anybody does. I was recently speaking with an author of some true crime books. He writes in numerous areas, but he has done some true crime books. And he expressed a concern that actually the preponderance of true crime books, and he's careful to say he tries not to be sensationalistic in his books and so forth, but the preponderance of books, podcasts, movies, TV shows, so forth and so on, have actually maybe encouraged people to take that step into serial killing. Do you do you see any evidence for that? Do you, do you see anything out there that would indicate maybe that that actually all of us talking about this all of the time might be detrimental? I think that is a legitimate concern. Um, I definitely don't think that most people who read true crime books or books about serial killers are studying it to put it into practice. But I think it, there's probably some truth that for individuals who are already inclined to be violent, to have murderous fantasies, I think that those kinds of books, that kind of exposure can certainly be appealing. And we definitely know that there have been serial killers who have studied other serial killers, read books about them, um, tried to avoid the mistakes that they made. There have been some arrests in the past few years of people who said that they wanted to be a serial killer and were aspiring to be it. And they had, you know, again, watched all these shows. So I think for a very small but significant um, percentage of people who do watch, you know, true crime shows, read true crime books, or you study serial killers, there is that motive. And I think that that is legitimate concern, although I think it's, you know, it's a small one, but, you know, even one is something that we want to avoid. So small is is, is not a, much of a um, an assurance, really, when we think about serial killers. In the book, you paint a picture of who serial killers are. Demographically and statistically speaking, what are the what are the trends? I mean, I think most of us think of maybe uh, younger white males as the typical uh, serial killer. We picture like somebody in their late twenties, their thirties. Obviously, a Dahmer, son of Sam. People like that come to mind. Um, is that really the reality, or is it? Do the numbers point to something different? Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I think that that still is the prevailing idea. When we think about serial killings, we think about a white man who's in his 20s or you know early to mid-30s, who tends to be a loner, who's unemployed, kind of a misfit. Um, and we know now that that is really not the case. Only about 12% of serial killers fall into that category. There is much more diversity um, among serial killers than we ever you know kind of knew. Um, not only in terms of race, but in terms of gender. So, um, you know, when we look at that today at the statistics, we know that, you know, men can still dominate. They commit 85 to 90% of serial murders. That white serial killers still have the edge about 52%. They still edge out um, African-American serial killers. And then other races really are, you know, much further down the list. Um, and also motives. It's still interesting to me, Jim, that you know, we, we watch these um, documentaries and true crime shows. So much of the time, we're still seeing 
sexually motivated serial killers. And that's who I think most of us think of when we think about serial killers. We do think about, again, Jeffrey Dahmer. We think about John Wayne Gacy. We think about Ted Bundy. We think about the Boston Strangler. Um, and yes, those are, I think, uh, we think about those because those, for whatever reason, tend to be the most interesting and the most covered from media perspective. But there is a huge diversity of motives um, for serial killers. You know, money is something we don't typically think about, but that is, you know, probably the second most common motive for serial murder is money. So I think that hopefully as we become more sophisticated in understanding, you know, what a serial killer is, we'll, we'll kind of increase our understanding. They're, they're much more varied and diverse group than we initially thought. Certainly, it is a thought-provoking discussion. We're talking with Dr. Joni Johnston. The book is Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. And we'll be back right after this. We're back on the crime scene. Our guest is Dr. Joni Johnston. The subject is her book, Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. Now, I'm going to ask you a question pertaining to that subtitle, uh, the part about true crime fans. And when I started this show in, actually started in 2011, uh, before Serial, uh, and then I stopped it for a long time and I, I came back to it. But there were people interested in true crime. There have for years. True crime books have sold very well. True crime movies, TV shows. But boy, with podcasting, I mean, it's probably the most, and I hate to say this word, lucrative uh, category um in podcasting. I mean, it seems to uh, really have taken the day to be very popular, particularly, I, I mean, I'll admit, not shows like this one, because we take more of an interview tack, but the kind of Dateline style narrative storytelling, where they tell the story of a serial killer or some kind of true crime. Uh, why do you think people are so enamored with true crime? And do you think that's a positive or a negative thing? I think that, you know, the interest in true crime, first of all, it has been around forever. Right. I mean, you can find transcripts, and you may have done this, you know, transcripts of, of crime, you know, or, you know, or, or articles and books of trials dating back, you know, a couple of hundred years. And they'll talk about people who are standing in line for hours waiting to get in. So whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I think it's probably a mixed bag. I mean, I really do. You know, I'm, I'm going to just be a hypocrite here a little bit in terms of saying I hate the word true crime fan. It fit in with the title and that was what was settled on. But, you know, I don't know that anybody's a fan of true crime. We don't want people to get hurt, right? I mean, these are real people that this is impacting. But I think there's a couple of things that are probably intriguing. One is it's a mystery. Um, I think it's something that's it's hard for many people to understand, and it's hard to look away from for that reason. I think people are interested because there's a sense, I think, sometimes that if I understand the mind of somebody who does this or I understand the situation this is most likely to happen, I can somehow protect myself um, from becoming a victim. And then I think there's probably the vicarious part of it, whereas it's kind of like, in a weird way, driving down the road and you see an accident, you know, and you think you should not look, but you do anyway. Um so I think it's all those things. And in terms of whether it's a plus or a minus, I have to say, I tend to be a defender of people who are interested in this because I do think that it has created a certain activism, which is a positive. And, and, and what I mean by that is I think people are much more likely to speak up if they see something that is concerning. I think people are more likely to intervene. 
I think people are more likely to report things that they're concerned about, um, that people, you know, have actively, I mean, we know that there have been cases recently where, you know, victims have been found by somebody who is basically an armchair detective. So there's a positive part in that that I, I will defend and defend and defend. And I think the other part of that, though, is making sure that that activism, hopefully it is activism and not, you know, kind of voyeurism, is appropriate and that we're not overstepping our bounds. We're not forgetting that, um, you know, again, the victims are family or, or, or real people and that they're families that are still alive and we want to be sensitive to that not glorifying the perpetrator um, or, you know, thinking that, you know, talking about how cute he is or, or whatever, he's too cute to be a murderer, those kinds of things. So I think there is a definitely been, I think, overall a, a positive part of this. But again, I certainly have seen some of the negatives. And so I think it's not so much whether it's a good or bad thing to be interested in true crime. It's how we do it and how we practice that interest. Yeah, honestly, one of the more disturbing things is when you hear people talk about the cute serial killer. I'm like, come on, people. <laughs> Get a reality check. This is, you know, these are, re and you said so well, the fact we have to remember, you know, if we read a work of fiction or watch a movie that's based on fiction, you know, it's one thing. But when we're talking about true crime, it's that first word there, true. It happened. Somebody was victimized in some way. In the case of murder, somebody lost their lives. And I think that even if we're interested and fascinated by a case, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But at the end of the day, I think it's very crucial that we remember we're talking not about characters, not that something that somebody cooked up in their mind, but living, breathing people who died in the case of murder and families that were left behind and pretty much devastated and never the same again. And also, I think that's such a good point, Jimmy. Also, you know, if we can, in some respects, model ourselves after some of the courage that family members of victims have had. I mean, there I, I don't know how many laws have been passed that have protected all of us. Um, and they've been driven and spearheaded by family members of victims who said, I don't want this to happen to somebody else's daughter. You know, or somebody else's sister, or somebody else's child. Yeah. Um, you know that we have the Amber Alert. We have. I mean, there's so many different laws that have been passed to protect all of us. It, I'm always just amazed at the courage that family members have and how they do transform that pain and grief into good. So much of the time, and so I think they're role modeling in a lot of respects for those of us who either are experts or psychologists, but also just, you know, everyday people who were interested in true crime, we can also use our interest in the subject matter for good. I'm reminded we recently did a show with uh, the journalist Carol Costello about her podcast, and it's about a woman who was raped and blinded. And uh, um, through her activism... And what she did after this horrible, unspeakable thing happened to her, she was uh, a great help for many people and uh, had a lot to do with the way uh, how rape has been treated differently than it was than when it happened to her. And that's, you know, that's just a horrible, horrible fate. But she somehow put that aside and focused on the difference she could make. And I just think the courage of 
whether it's victims who live on or victims' families who don't live on, uh, I think that their courage is amazing. Another example is, I always bring this one up, in Cleveland, I'm in the Cleveland area, we had uh, a situation back almost 10 years ago exactly where three young women had been kept captive for years in the basement of basically a monster. And um, they they were all fought dead. Um, they did they did escape. Um, and this gentleman, if I should call him that, this monster, was apprehended and ended up committing suicide, of course. Um, but the point being, the one woman in particular, what she's gone on and done is she does a whole thing with one of the local television stations spotlighting missing people. And I forget, she just won some major national award, and they were saying how many people have been found because of her work. So, I mean, it's just amazing to me when crime victims and family of crime victims uh, can go on and take a horrible thing and and try to bring something something positive out of it. My kudos and hats off to all of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to see that generosity of people, you know, family members who've lost somebody and, you know, we are talking about serial murder here or just murder in general, who then reach out. You know, they're often the first ones to reach out to another family. And you're right. I think that's it's just it's so admirable. It is indeed. It is indeed. So, I mean, we've talked about some of them, I'm sure. Uh, but what are some of the common questions, a couple of them? I mean, you need to get the book so you can see all 101. But what are a couple of the more common ones that we haven't covered yet that people have about serial killers? Well, you know, there's, there's certainly the nature versus nurture one, which, um, you know, comes up all the time. And I wish we had a good answer for it. <laughs> but that's the, that's the bad part of that question. Like, you know, it's interesting because... Um, one of the things we're finding is that, you know, every serial killer to some extent is unique. And that is very frustrating to us who are trying to profile people and figure them out and put them in categories and those kinds of things. Um, but there are some commonalities that we see. Um, you know, certainly we know that trauma, the history of childhood mistreatment is overrepresented among serial killers. Mm-hmm. We know that depending upon the motive, you can find certain, you know, certain commonalities in the in the background. One of the most common, I think, myths around serial killers or violent offenders in general is this idea of the McDonald triad, which you may have heard of in the past. Uh, when I was in, in graduate school, for example, there was this kind of belief that, you know, if you're looking at, you know, let's, let's spot these budding serial killers, we look for bedwetting, you know, past the age of 12, we look for animal cruelty. We look for fire setting. And if you have, you know, one or more of those, then, you know, something's got to be done right away. And we know now that, in fact, that is not accurate in terms of predicting whether somebody's become, going to become a psychopath or going to become a serial killer. Um, that, in fact, what we've discovered is that when somebody has, you know, one or more of these. Now, first of all, there's obviously some medical conditions that can result in enuresis or, or bedwetting, extended bedwetting. And so let's take that out of the equation. So we're assuming that this kind of extended bedwetting is not due to medical or genetic reasons. Um, but then in fact, when you have one or more of those factors, what it tends to suggest is this person has experienced some kind of trauma, uh, not so much that this person is a budding serial killer or a budding psychopath. Now, having said that, um, there are some 
uh, forms of animal cruelty, for example, that are obviously concerning. And you can find several examples of seal killers who began practicing on animals at a fairly young age. So, you know, if I, you know, was to encounter or did encounter when I first got out of graduate school, a child, for example, who was over the age of six or seven, uh, because at that age, children understand that, you know, it's not nice to hurt animals. They understand that animals are all beings mm-hmm. and that it's, you know, that they experience pain. If I'm seeing a child at seven or eight or six or seven or eight or older who is actively hurting an animal, that is something that I'm going to refer out because it is not in the norm for child development. And it does signal to me either they've experienced something traumatic or they've perhaps observed other, other abuse. And there, that is definitely a red flag. So it wasn't that there wasn't some merit. Same thing when you're talking about fire setting. Obviously, it's not uncommon for children to be interested in the matches or you know to play around with them. But if you have a child who is setting repeated fires, that also is a red flag. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean this person's a budding serial killer, but it does mean we need to, to, to at least evaluate this child. So when you're looking at the nature versus nurture thing, I think what we are finding is that there does seem to be some genetic predisposition at least for psychopathy. And it's important to, you know, kind of differentiate between serial killers and psychopathy. I do not believe that serial killers are born. I do believe that there are some individuals and not that many who have a very high genetic loading for psychopathy, which is this lack of empathy, lack of remorse, lack of guilt, you know, manipulative, um, kind of exploitive interpersonal style. And certainly we know that you know, a, a significant number of seal killers are psychopaths. So I think there is some genetic loading for psychopathy. Um, but we also know that even individuals who, you know, may have some genetic loading, it, ten- it seems to be that certain environmental um, experiences or seem to kind of set those in motion. Um, in other words, if I was born with this kind of genetic loading for psychopathy, and I had very stable parents who, um, you know, were effective at discipline, who were effective at love, effective at limit setting. The odds of me growing up to become a psychopath or what, or what, or certainly to become a violent psychopath are very low. So it seems to be what creates a serial killer is this perfect storm, oftentimes of some kind of genetic vulnerability coupled with these life experiences. Now, having said that, can we find exceptions? Can we find individuals or serial killers who seem to have good childhoods? We can. So what it seems like is that you have these outliers um, that for most serial killers, again, you have this kind of combination of some kind of genetic vulnerability in conjunction with childhood trauma and other life experiences that then kind of creates this recipe which bakes a serial killer. And then you have these outliers where a person, for example, may not have been born with this genetic loading, but their environment is so horrible and so traumatic um, and their life experiences continue to be that way that they end up being so full of anger um, and so full of fantasies of revenge, they do end up becoming serial killers. And then you have the other extreme where you have somebody who you know, perhaps has such a genetic loading, but it doesn't take a lot of environmental adversity for them to kind of become that. Another thing I, I wonder if people ask you your opinion on, and I'll ask your opinion on, is the death penalty for serial killers. I'll put it in this context. Uh, just my personal opinion, and this is just me. I'm not an expert or anything. Now, with somebody convicted of one murder, 
Sometimes I'm I'm very hesitant to think about something like the death penalty because I don't know how many cases we've seen with the various innocence projects where someone was convicted of a crime, not necessarily murder, but robbery or whatever it might be. I just saw a story today. Um, and then we find out 20 years later that that was an error. Now, of course, you can never give that person back time, uh, but there at least there's something that can be done and it's not really restitution because you can't, again, you can't give somebody back 20 years, but you can give them financial settlement and hopefully they can spend whatever time they have left to have a fruitful life. You make that mistake on death penalty and uh, that's something you're not taking back in any way whatsoever. There is no even attempt to fix it because it's utterly impossible. So when it comes to individual murders, uh, unless somebody is, I always like to say I wish the legal system had guilty and super guilty. And I I think you know what I'm saying is guilty yeah. is like, well, you know, it was close. It could have gone either way, but we think beyond the shadow of a doubt. But it was some back and forth. And then there's a person caught with a gun in their hand, right? Uh, with a smoking gun in their hand, literally. Or they've done it in public. You know, something where there's no question whatsoever that they've done. When you deal with these serial killers, it seems like in many of these cases— there's no question they've done it, like a John Wayne Gacy yeah. or or Dahmer, people like that. To me, and this may sound cold, I'm like, shoot the juice to him, Bruce. I mean, I, I'm just like, you know what? You, there's no rehabilitating you. You've done horrible things. I'm sorry you had a bad childhood, but um, there's no excuse for it. And I know that sounds really harsh, but that's the way I feel about serial killers specifically. What are your thoughts on um, on serial killers and the death penalty? Well, I think the question boils down to, because you're absolutely right, I think, you know, the serial killers, it, there's only been one serial killer um, that I know of, or a convicted serial killer, William Irons, who was convicted in the 1940s, who may, in fact, have been innocent. Um, and that's kind of come to light relatively recently, but you're absolutely right, Jam. I mean, all the ones that we know about in today's time, there seems to just be overwhelming evidence. I mean, when you find, you know, 30 bodies in somebody's basement, it's hard to kind of go, I say, I didn't do it, right? And right. to convince other people. Um, and so there's the question of whether this person is guilt, guilty or innocent has been answered long ago. So then the question I think becomes, to me, um, you know, the question become or the, 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 the options become life without parole or the death penalty. Because the whole issue of rehabilitation, I think, for the most part, is off the table. You know, I know that we know that... Um, you know, I think 22% of serial killers who were, rele who were released from prison killed again. So, you know, rehabilitation, again, is not something I would ever put a dime on when you're talking about a serial killer. And then I think it, it, give, it then it becomes a question of uh, who are we as a society? Really? Mm -hmm. That to me is the only question in terms of death penalty for, a, for serial killers who are convicted. Meaning the guilt is is been established. Um, it's also been established this person is not rehabilitatable. So whose choice, whose decision is it? I mean, if 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 the um if we're saying punishment, the ultimate punishment is deserved here. I mean, I don't know that anybody would deserve it more than somebody who's taken more than one life in a premeditated way. So I personally um I'm on the fence about the death penalty. Um, I have no qualms, would have no qualms whatsoever about life without parole for any of the serial killers that we've talked about. 
at all because I, it would be terrifying to me to think that anybody would ever get out. Um, the death penalty, I think for me, and it's, it, it's more of, a, I think for me, a more of a moral issue than it is anything else. Sure. But I have no qualms about people who say, and certainly I do feel like in some respects, family members need to have a lot of weight in that decision. You know, there are certain family members who say, you know, I want to be sitting on the front row when this person is put to death. I understand that, and I'd applaud that if that, that's the way this family feels and they're dealing with that. There are families who say, I don't believe in the death right. penalty. It doesn't mean anything to me. I don't want that. I applaud that if that's that family's decision. That's an um, excellent point. People who say, I don't want my answer to killing to be more killing. Exactly. Exactly. And I completely understand both of those sentiments. And and that's a great point. I think that what the families think is, in many ways to me, maybe not in the eyes of the law, but to me, more important than anything else. But uh, a very interesting perspective on that. And stuff, I mean, um, I've gone back and forth on that question myself. Uh, at one point, I was a staunch death penalty believer, and then I became very, very reluctant with it, where I said, no, you should never have the death penalty. And over time, I've kind of settled back into that that super guilty thought. You know, it, it, if it's multiple killings and it's, you know, the 33 uh, corpses in your basement or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, when you have talked to offenders, uh, have you talked to serial killers face-to-face before? I didn't know it at the time. I worked, excuse me, I've worked with many offenders. Um, I worked in a maximum security prison for a couple of years. And it's interesting because when you're working in a maximum security prison as a forensic psychologist, you're really dealing with almost the day-to-day issues with this. So you don't often know necessarily what this person is in for. So I actually did talk to one serial killer that I only found out later that I that he had been convicted of multiple murders. Um, I have worked with many violent offenders. I have worked with many um, premeditated murderers and, you know, first-time murderers. But I, I did not know I had actually interviewed a serial killer until later. Um, and and I guess that's what's true is there's there, there's not a flashing light that says I am a serial killer, right? No, there really isn't. I mean, it would be nice, wouldn't it? We might all be a lot safer if there was a flashing light that said, you know, stay away. Um, there's not. And, you know, I mean, this person certainly was, um, you know, a very violent individual in prison, which is not, you know, necessarily um, characteristic of, you know, serial killers in general right. in prison. You can find killers who've been model, you know, model inmates. And there have been a few in, in England who've been model inmates and gotten out and then, you know, started offending again. So how a person is inside of a prison situation is not necessarily how they're going to be outside of one. This particular individual was very violent in prison um, and very motivated to get, to kind of get his needs met. And so I was dealing with him about literally his behavior inside of the prison situation. And then only later, like I said, found out that he had um, murdered several individuals outside of prison. My goodness. My goodness. What um, what a subject. And I applaud you for looking deep into it and making it a large part of your professional life, because, you know, when you do a weekly or every other week podcast on it, you've got a lot of space, a lot of room. You're not in it. But this is, you know, a large part of your life uh, studying this. So I applaud applaud you uh, for, for having the strength to do that. 
Well, thank you. I, I, I have to say, I, I feel very fortunate in that it sounds odd in a way, but I feel very privileged to be able to do what I do. And it's something that I really, I guess, embrace and, and hope that I can contribute to understanding more so we can intervene earlier and prevent some of these things from happening. The question now is, where can people find the book and also more information about everything else you do, your podcast, your YouTube channel, so forth and so on? Well, my website is pretty easy. It's um, drjoanyjohnston.com. Um, you had mentioned my Psychology Today blog, which is called The Human Equation. So I'd, I'd be happy for anybody to go and, and read any article that might be of interest. Um, the book, Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask, can be found on Amazon or I think pretty much in any bookstore. Um, and then I have a free true crime newsletter um, called The Mind Detective, which you know I tip, try to cover different cases as they come up and try to use the true crime story as a launching pad to discuss some psychology topic that I think might be of interest. So those are the things that kind of come to mind. Well, I appreciate your time today. It's been a fascinating look. The book is Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. And our guest has been Dr. Joni Johnston. Dr. Johnston, thank you for your time today. It was really fun. Thanks for having me, Jim. And thank you for joining us today on The Crime Scene. We appreciate it. And I'm sure Dr. Johnston will agree. Be careful out there. Bye-bye, everybody. 